Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. It is great to gather together both online and in person, and it's great to see your faces. Those of you in here, please say hi and where you're coming from if you're online, and uh, Merry Christmas. I hope that you've been able to celebrate some traditions and uh, I guess some of the celebration of the arrival of Jesus. We've been doing this series called Hope Delivered, as you can see from that video, and talking about our hope ultimately is Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Romans chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to make an observation to you, the basic observation I've made of life, is that there are really two kinds of people in this world when it comes to filling up your gas tank. There are those who will fill the gas tank up whenever they have the opportunity. Maybe it'll get down to three quarters of a tank, maybe it'll get down to half a tank, but they're going to fill it up. They're the kind of always full people. Then there are the push the limits people. Some of you are push the limits people. I can see by the way you're responding already. Push the limits people are the people that let their gas tank get down to E and then a little bit further. And then maybe it gets down to, you know, 10 miles, 5 miles. Somebody was telling me there's a buffer after zero miles after the first service trying to assure me. Somebody else told me I needed to put some gas tanks in my wife's car so she doesn't run out of gas. And, and the reason why is because I was re- I've learned recently that my wife is a push-the-limits lady. And we don't, oftentimes we got our own cars, we drive different places to work and things like that. But I had noticed because I was riding in the car with my kids and they kept asking me if I had enough gas. And so we're backing out of the driveway one day, and you know, my 10, 11-year-old daughter says, Dad, do we have enough gas? And I was like, why, why do you care? Like, you're a kid. I'm the dad. I'll be the dad. You be the kid. Stop asking about the gas. <laughs> then I learned why. They started to tell me a tall tale of a moment that they had experienced with mom that I was not a part of. My wife later verified and gave me permission to share this with you, so there's not problems in the marriage here after the service. But apparently, they were going to a birthday party out in Eflint. I don't know if you know EFF land, where that's at. Uh, I guess it's somewhere between Chapel Hill and Tennessee. It's kind of what the description that I got. If you're watching from Eflint online, thank you for joining us today. And uh, my wife said, when I got in the car, I knew that we didn't have very much gas. On the way out there, the gas gauge on my car said 20 miles till empty. So then I started watching the GPS, four miles till the next turn three miles to the next turn. And she's doing the math in her head. She's watching the gauge go down. They get to the birthday party. She's got 10 miles left. But she hasn't seen a gas station for a long time. They're on the middle of nowhere at this horse farm. The birthday party happens. They get back in the car. My four daughters have no idea they're about to, the way they tell the story, about to die, but they're about to run out of gas. And so my wife gets in the car. It's now raining. It's foggy outside. They start driving, they start to sense that mom is panicked, and they start asking her questions. Why are you so, just find a gas station. Just look out the windows for a gas station. So then what happens in our family is everybody thinks they're the boss. Everybody who's not supposed to be the boss now is trying to be the boss, and so they try to look out the windows, but they're all foggy. So they go to wipe the windows off. Then somebody yells at that person for wiping the windows while they're foggy. Somebody goes to put the window down. Can't put the window down, it's raining outside. Fights are ensuing, they're screaming, they may or may not have been crying. I'm not allowed to share that part, but there's that, second service, that's what you get. And so they're fighting in this whole process. My wife, in the meantime, four miles to the next turn, three miles to the next turn, Gas gauge is going down. They get to I-40. She's got one mile left. They start driving on I-40, and then they see a sign for a gas station. It was like, whoa! The heavens open in this moment. They come rolling in with one mile there, and everybody's stressed, and now my kids have PTSD and keep asking me about the gas gauge in my car (laughs) because the gauge got so low. What does that have to do with this series? Here's what it has to do with this series. We're at a place as a culture, as a world, and I would imagine even in this church, where our hope levels are at an all-time low. 
statistically, if you look, there was a statistic that was put out by the U.S. Census Bureau as they were surveying people of how COVID-19 was impacting their lives, and 48% of people said that within seven days of taking the survey, they had felt down, depressed, even hopeless. There's a study that went out before that by Princeton University you can look up. It's been published by Psychology Today, and they were talking before COVID even happened, before we even knew that it existed, and they said based on, in America specifically, the stats were actually the opposite around the world, but because suicide deaths were going up so much, and what they called and classified as reckless deaths, those are people that, because of drunk driving, because of drug use, because of recklessness with their lives, that they said that hope We were at an epidemic place of hopelessness, that hope had gotten to an all-time low. So before COVID, they were calling our hopelessness epidemic. So hope levels are low, even with followers of Jesus Christ. Statistically, with a church our size, at least the size that we were, I don't have any idea how many people are part of our church now, but the size that we were pre-COVID, statistics would say that about four people in our congregation would be considering taking their own lives. For that to be true, that means you're, you're, you're out of hope. It's at zero. Now, I don't know where your hope level is today. Maybe you're one of those four, Lord willing, that's not happening, but maybe you are. Or maybe you're at some other place. place. How can your hope level increase today? How, how can your tank of hope become more full today? And I believe our passage of Scripture gives us the answers. It's in Romans chapter 4. Romans is one of the, the larger books in the New Testament, if you're flipping through Acts and then Romans. And it's a letter that's written by a guy named Paul. Who's Paul? He gets talked about a lot in the New Testament. He writes a lot of the New Testament. He was a guy who was actually against Jesus, against churches being started, against all of that, and then God radically transformed his life. Now he's a guy who starts churches and is writing letters to encourage churches. And so he's writing to some Christians that are in Rome to encourage their faith, and he's making an argument. The argument's bad news, then good news. The bad news is simply this, that we're all sinners. Here's how he, it's really interesting how he puts it, though. Not only are we all sinners, we've all actually done the same sin. And he's not talking about murder. He's not talking about adultery. He's not talking about lying. He says in Romans chapter 1, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we all do this. This is universal. And and instead of worshiping the maker of the world, we worship the things of this world. Now, you may categorize your sins differently based on which kind of your your weaknesses are, what your personality is, what your upbringing is. Maybe you're a people pleaser. Maybe it's it's an idolatry of power. Maybe you want money. Maybe it's pleasure. It could be all kinds of different things, but we're doing the same thing. We're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're worshiping the things he's created, even good things, and we're making them the ultimate thing. And so we reject God. We're sinners. That means we're separated from God. That's bad news. But the good news is we can be reconciled to God the way that it happens, the means by which it happens is faith. It's the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. No one was ever made right with God because of animal sacrifices, not bulls or goats. Hebrews talks about that. No one was ever made right with God by obeying the entire law. One, no one could do it, but even if they did, that's not how you're made right with God. The Bible actually says Old Testament, New Testament, however, any person that's ever walked the earth, there's only one way to be made right with God. It's by faith in God, by grace, through faith. And God gives us a gift through his son, Jesus Christ. And what Paul's doing in this book is he's actually using an Old Testament character named Abraham to show us how that's true. And so we're looking at an example in Romans chapter 4 from the life of a guy named Abraham. Abraham was a guy who existed back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the world. And look at what he says about it. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, he talks about the role that hope plays in this faith. He says, as it is written, I'll start reading verse 17. We're really going to focus on verse 18, but I'm going to read 17 through 22 to give us the whole context. Verse 17, as it is written... I've made you, talking about Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And who's this God? What's he like? 
who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. Huh? What does that mean? It's an interesting phrase. What does it mean? We'll come back to that. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness, and this is his wife, of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham even, before Jesus even walked the earth, the way that Abraham would come to relationship with God is by faith it would be counted to him as righteousness. And then we see in verse 18 the importance of hope. See, hope is so crucial. I was reading a book this week. I was thinking about this series, doing a little bit of extra research, thinking about hope in my own life. And the book's called The Hope Quotient by a pastor named Ray Johnston. And he was talking in there about how he's not a very good counselor, but so when he meets a good counselor... He oftentimes asks them questions about how they're good at what they do. And he was talking about this famous psychologist that helps people in marriages that are struggling, usually marriages that are kind of on their, their last limb. And uh, he said that I asked him, I said, what's the key to turning those marriages around? So you're, you're famous for people coming to you and those marriages are getting turned around. And the psychologist said back, the key is just 10% improvement. Once a couple has 10% improvement, there's hope. And get this, once there's hope, anything's possible. I was just thinking about our church, my vision for today's message even. We've got a vision as a church, right, to connect people to Jesus for life change. And that's kind of a big vision. Like when we think about when does that happen in my life, you'd probably come here today and you're like, well, our life won't be changed. Hopefully I'll be encouraged. But like we think like salvation, like somebody trusts Christ, they turn to Jesus, that's life change or free from an addiction or reconciling a relationship or they take a step of faith, they get baptized and and some of you might be thinking, that's not me today. That's not me. Here's my, I have a very small vision for today's message. My vision is just that, that wherever you're at and your hope levels, they would increase by 10%. So maybe you're at zero. Maybe you're just like tuning into the service and you're thinking about taking your own life and I hope you'll get to 10% today. You'll have hope for tomorrow. Maybe you're at 50%, but you're usually a 75 person, a glass half full kind of person, but I hope you'll just increase 10%. Wherever you're at, I pray that you'll hope more today, and I believe that you will if you grasp the truths of this passage. Because what we see in this passage of Scripture is how to have hope amidst hopeless circumstances. And the first thing that we see, there's just two points today. The first one is simply this, that God is faithful even when life seems impossible. That God is faithful even when life seems impossible. And that's where it was for Abraham, even when, when God first had an encounter with him. I mean, we're picking this up here in verse 17 to give you some context to go to this phrase that's in verse 18, but the story starts back in Genesis. Let me read verse 17 again for you. In verse 17, it says, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Problem. He didn't have any kids. He's 75 years old at this moment. In the presence of, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so the promise wasn't, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. The promise is you're going to be the father of many nations. Those nations didn't even exist yet. And God's speaking about these things as if they're true. And then it says how Abraham responded, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. Well, what does that even mean? Kind of a catchy phrase. You know, I've titled today's message, Hope Against Hope, because it kind of gets your attention. Like, how do you hope against? Isn't it you're against the thing that you're in? And 
Because remember this, last week we laid the foundation for this series and we talked about what biblical hope is. And biblical hope is different than hope that many of us mean when we're talking about hope. A lot of us, when we talk about hope, we mean a wish. I hope I get a raise. I hope this person asks me on a date. I hope I get invited to that party. I hope I get this Christmas present. I hope I have this experience. I hope I can go to this place. That's a wish. Not wrong. Not wrong to be optimistic. Not wrong to have a wish. But it's not based on anything objective. And this is why biblical hope is different. Because it's based on God's word. It's based on God's promises. And so it's not a doubt. It's not a wish. In fact, we define biblical hope as this. A confident, and you can be confident because God said it. A confident expectation of things you know to be true. You just haven't experienced them yet. Because hope, by its nature, is future. So you can't have experienced it yet. You don't hope in the past. You hope about the future. But you know that it's true because God has said that it's true even when everything around you says that it's not true. And that's what's being talked about when it says hope against hope. He's got hope. He believed in what God had told him even though against hope everything around him seemed hopeless. Everything around him seemed to go actually contrary to what God had told him to be true. You're going to be the father of many nations. I can't even have a kid. And some of you, that's what life is like. You've got, you've got promises that you believe from God. God listens to your prayers. But what about when it feels like they don't even leave the room? That God's present with you. That he is with you always. That he'll never leave you or forsake you. But you sure feel lonely. That God is good, but everything around me seems bad. That, see, that's where faith comes in. Do you believe the things that God says to be true when all the things in life around you seem to contradict the very things that God says to be true? And that's what it's talking about here. How can that be possible? Because we know that God is faithful even, even when life seems to be impossible. And to really understand this passage, you've got to go back to that story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so the very beginning of the world is Genesis chapter 1. Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. Okay, so this is only 12 chapters into human history. Abraham's on the scene. When we meet him, he's already 75 years old. And he's married to a woman who's 65 years old. Her name is Sarah. We first meet her in Genesis chapter 11. The only thing we're told about her is she's barren. She's not allowed, not able to have children. And then God says in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, first of all, his name's only Abram at that point. Oftentimes God changes names when he changes people's lives in the Bible. So his name's Abram. Do you know what Abram means? Exalted father. So a lot of times we read this story, like this Sunday school story, like this guy didn't know existed, just whatever, just 75 years old, and all of a sudden he's on the scene. Think about what his life was like up to that moment. In a society where having children was so important, his name is Exalted Father, he can't have any kids. Can you imagine going to a party if you're Abram? My name's Exalted Father, I show up at this party, they've got those little stickers, hello, my name is. You going to fill it out? I'd be tempted to be like, Abe, just call me Abe. Let's not go with Abram. Read Exalted Father on there. Walk up to people. Hey, how's it going? My name's Exalted Father. How many kids do you have? Zero? Hmm, okay. Now what do I say? This is awkward. Oh, but his name gets changed to Abraham. You don't know that. That's what he's being called here even in the New Testament. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of a multitude. That's worse. Can you imagine? Father of a multitude. How many kids do you have? <laughs> None, but I have a promise. God told me I'm going to have kids. Even as a pastor, I'm like, this dude's crazy. I'm out of here. I don't know how to have this. Have you ever met somebody at a party and they tell you something that's so unbelievable, you don't know what to say to them afterwards? You meet some guys, like, I'm going to play in the major leagues one day. Really? You look like you're about 50. You're in, Someday it's going to happen? Okay, yeah. Do you play baseball? Like you're just trying to make conversation? No, but I was on my church softball league. I was the backup pitcher. 
<laughs> okay, awkward. I don't want to kill your dreams. I'm done with this conversation. I think you're nuts. That was Abraham's life. Like, hi, I'm, I'm the father of a multitude. How many kids do you have? None. <laughs> and, and if you read Genesis chapter 12, I encourage you to read Genesis 12 through 15 to understand this passage. When Abraham gets this information from God, you're going to be a father of many nations. There's no indication that Sarah's there. So just imagine, like, think to yourself, beyond Sunday school and two-dimensional stories, like, what was that really like for him to go home from work that day? Honey, how was work? Abraham, uh, good? What happened? Mm, I worked. Did you talk to anybody? Yep, the creator of the world. Oh, boy. What did he say? You're going to have babies. She's 65. What do you think she's saying at that moment? I think my husband's lost his mind. Like, we always read it like Sarah was just like, all right, and by the way, we're moving. Where are we going? I don't know. We'll know when we get there. Like, she's just, okay. No, but I would imagine there was some conversation, at least in that. She probably called her best friend up, or I don't know how they communicated. Walked over to her best friend's tent. Like, whatever happened in that moment. We're going to talk about, this is weird. What are you talking about? So everything went against this, and then here's what you need to get. He's 75 when he gets the promise, and then when he's 76, it still hasn't happened. And when he's 77, it still hasn't happened. And when he's 78, it still hasn't happened. And when he's 85, it still hasn't happened. When he's 95, it still hasn't happened. Because you know what happens next? He's not just waiting for 25 years. He's living life. And God's taking him through a process. He goes to Egypt, and there's a famine. And after the famine, then there's a pharaoh who he's scared of. And so he lies to him about his, his wife and says it is his sister so he doesn't get killed. And, and he's, his character shows. He's coming to the surface. God's refining his character. He's changing him. He's transforming him through the process. But do you know what happens through all of the process? He gets in a family fight with Lot. He has to go and rescue Lot. You ever had family dynamics? Don't say amen. They might be watching online, even if you think they're not here. We all have these things that happen. They're part of our process. But sometimes in the process, all you have is a promise. Abraham's going through this process where God's refining his character, transforming him, and all he has to hang on to is this single promise. And everything in his life's going against the things that God has said to him, but he's hanging on to this promise. I'm going to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's, I guarantee you God's taking you through a process. Maybe some of this pandemic, maybe issues with your family, maybe things that are going on that's shown some weaknesses in your character. God's taking you through a promise. I know that because the Bible says it. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're all in process. Sometimes in the process, all you have to hang on to is a promise. The problem is that many of us don't like the process. We want to skip to the end. And that's how we read the Bible sometimes. Oh, he was 75, and then he had a baby at 100. Oh, that's crazy, but we just skipped 25 years of his life. We're all in the process. Well, we were watching TV this week, and I was in the kitchen, my wife turned the TV on, she was HGTV. I think HGTV has become popular for lots of reasons. Uh, it doesn't seem to have an agenda, and they're like just these shows, and it shows transformation. And she said, it's the last 10 minutes of, I think it was like Fixer Upper or something. And I was like, good, that's the best part. We get to see the beginning and the end, they recap everything. I don't have to mess with them going, oh, we've got asbestos, we need another $10,000. Like, and then the commercial, they'll sell you some lemonade or whatever is going through the thing. It's like, I don't have to mess with it. Just show me, beginning product, end product, awesome, efficient way to watch TV. You know why? Because I don't like the process. A lot of us are like that in our spiritual journey because the process is hard. See, in Abraham's life, what's happening to him is everything in his life is coming against the very thing that God told him. It's like a tsunami. Have you ever seen a tsunami where they'll hit you know, some country, some town, and a big body of water just wipes everything out? 
But then there's always survivors. And the survivors tell stories. And the stories usually go something like this. I grabbed a hold of this pole. And everything, I knew if I let go of the pole, I was dead. But I held onto the pole. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's what we need to be like with God's promises. You want your hope level to go up? What promises are you clinging to? Because sometimes in the process, all you have is a promise. That's where Abraham was at. But here's the good news. Even when life seems impossible, God is faithful, and he always keeps his promises. Amen? You just think about what we're celebrating right now this time of year with Christmas. And what happens in the Christmas story, it's like God's screaming to us, I keep my promises. Don't miss that. When you read the Christmas story, I read last, last week to kick off the service, I read from Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, it says there's these shepherds out in the field. An angel appears to them. God speaks to them, says you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And do you know what happens? They go. That's exactly what happened. Luke chapter 2, it's up on the screen. Luke chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Why? For all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. In other words, God does what he says. God keeps his promises. The Bible's screaming out to us, I keep my promises. You, you read throughout the Christmas story. Read Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin will be with child. It'll be a son. And to give him the name Emmanuel because he's God with us. He's not just a human being born, unique birth. This is God being born in the flesh. That's happening here. Do you know what this passage is screaming out to us? Because this is exactly what happens in the story of Jesus. It was promised in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You can look that up on your own a little bit later. 700 years before it happened. Now listen, God doesn't always keep his promises the way we want, in the timing that we want, but he always keeps his promises. But that was impossible. A virgin have a child? God is faithful even when it seems impossible. A son? No ultrasounds? No, God said so. God with us in the flesh? How is that? God said so. Well, you keep reading the story. Go to Matthew chapter 2. There's these magi that come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where all the Jewish people live. And the magi, they're not Jewish, but they're asking this question. Where's the one born king of the Jews? You'd think Jewish people would know the answer. They don't. So we'll send you to Herod. Herod's not even Jewish, but he's claiming to be king of the Jews. He's half Edomian, half Jewish, and he doesn't know. You would think if your job was to call yourself king of the Jews and you were a phony, you'd probably try to figure out where's the real king of the Jews going to be born. He didn't know. So he calls in some guys who know the Bible. They're like, easy. This has been prophesied for hundreds of years. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem. Okay, but that doesn't mean God keeps his promise. It just means he made a promise. Well, then the Magi go to Bethlehem, and they find Jesus, and that's screaming out to us, God keeps his promises. But then there's parts of the story that we oftentimes don't like to talk about. There's parts that we don't say in the Christmas Eve service because all the little kids are with us, right? You don't want to scare the little kids. I know there's some kids here right now. I won't be too graphic, but you know what happens next? Is there's a godless, paranoid leader named Herod, and he decides he's going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem that are two and under. And let me tell you something that we're learning in that moment is that even when you have a godless, paranoid leader, our God is still sovereignly ruling. And so whether you have a godless leader in North Korea, whether you have a godless leader in America, whether you have a godless leader wherever around the world, God is still in control. Amen? And what happens is Herod's this godless, paranoid leader. He sends to kill all these kids. But Mary and Joseph hear about it. And so they head out and they hide in Egypt. And then when Herod's gone, they come out of Egypt. That's interesting because Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 says that, says that when Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you just read the Bible, in the old, and you look at all these prophecies and these promises in the Old Testament, you go, how is a virgin going to have a child? How is a virgin going to have a child that's born in Bethlehem and then be called out of Egypt? But then you look at the story, the Christmas story, and you go, wow, God keeps his promises. Do you know why? Because even when it seems impossible, our God is faithful. Amen? I hope that encourages your hope a little bit today. But that's not all. You keep going through the passage, you know what else we see? This is the second point is that even, you know, God's power is immeasurable even when life seems impossible. God's power is immeasurable when life seems impossible. Because you got here with Abraham, this one promise that he's clinging to. Now, there were other promises in the Bible up to this point. Not like we have, not thousands like we have. There were a few. The Messiah was promised in Genesis chapter 3. Noah was promised. God's not going to destroy the earth by a flood again. But here, he's clinging to one promise. One promise as a man who's 75 years old, who doesn't have any kids, it's the greatest pain in his life, he's told he's going to be the father of nations. Now that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Like if that was the biggest pain in your life, for your whole life, and someone said that to you, it's too good to be true. And hadn't anybody told Abraham, if a deal's too good to be true, it probably is? That's generally true in business, by the way. But he wasn't believing in what was said. Do you see what he was believing in? The one who said it. Look at what the text says. So after the hope against hope, he said in verse 17 that he believed that God could do things create out of the dead. He could bring life to the dead, cause into existence the things that do not exist. Then verse 18, he hoped against hope and said that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he knew he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that it was a great promise, and so he had to hang on to it because it was his only hope. That's not what it says. Fully convinced, it didn't have anything to do with the promise, it had to do with the one who made the promise, that God was able. The key word there is able. Now here's the crazy thing. Abraham had never seen a miracle. If you read the Bible, to our knowledge, he had never seen a miracle. The parting of the Red Sea, about 400 years later. He didn't know about that. Walls tumbling down in Jericho, didn't know about any of that stuff. Sun standing still, people being raised. He never saw anybody, much less Jesus, never saw anybody raised from the dead. Not Elijah with the widow, not Jairus' daughter, never saw, no one had ever been raised from the dead, but he believed that God could bring life out of death. How? Because he believed that God is God. And many of us don't. See, the problem is for many of us, is we want the promises to be true. The promises sound great. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll empower the very things I've commanded you to do. I haven't planted my spirit to live within you. You've got the power of the right Jesus. Like, we want those things to be true. We just don't believe they're true because we don't let God be God. Our God is too small. The God that we create is too small. And here's how we know. We treat God more like a life coach than the creator of the world. Less like a sovereign, more like a personal assistant. He's good to give us some advice, and if we like it, we might take it. Here's how you know if the God you believe in is the God of the Bible or you made up with this God. Do you, does the God that you believe in affirm everything you already believe? If so, that's not the God of the Bible. Because what should happen is when we read through the Bible, sometimes we come to stuff and go, I would never, I would have never thought that, because his ways and our ways aren't in the same universe, Okay? And so if, if, you believe, if you go, I can never believe in a God who doesn't, then you've created your God, and he's more like a personal assistant. Maybe he can give you some advice, but he's not going to radically transform your beliefs. And the God of the Bible does. 
and maybe he can help you out in life, he's not going to radically transform your life either. Because the God of the Bible does. And what you see here, it's almost like God wanted things to get impossible before he put his glory on display. Why didn't he give Abraham children when he was 75 years old? Like, does that even sound believable to you? She's 65 years old? I was telling my family this week, if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, you can see different things about pregnancies. One of them is the woman that gave the most, the birth to the most children. And so this isn't the Bible. This is the Guinness Book of World Records. Do you have any idea what you think that number might be? It's 69 kids. Yeah, my, my family thought the same thing. No, no, no way. And you read it, and it says that she, I think it was like 14 sets of twins, Seven sets of triplets, like four times she had quads. What? I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just telling you that's what it said. You know what else it says? You know what it says with the oldest person to give birth? It's a woman that was 72 years old through in vitro fertilization. There's another one that was a little bit easier to confirm. She was in her late 60s, I think 67, 68 years old. The oldest woman that gave birth without in vitro fertilization because they didn't have IVF in Genesis 12, FYI. The oldest person without that was 59 years old. And so 59 years old and Sarah's 65, it's like, unlikely, maybe? But it didn't happen when she was 65. Didn't happen when she was 75. Didn't happen when she was 85. Didn't happen until she was 90 years old. It's like God wanted things to get impossible so that when it happened, it was clear he did it. And sometimes that happens in our lives. I've seen it through life. I've seen it through other Bible stories. That a lot, a lot of times the way God does it is kind of like, I don't know what your Christmas traditions are, but our family, one of the things we like to do is go drive around and look at the light shows. Ever see those light shows that are synced up with the music? We're going to have some of that in our, our, our Christmas party this weekend, uh, or December 9th this week, and uh, synced up with some of the lights. You go to some of these different light shows. Some of them are like crazy, right? Like you go to these farms, you can drive through, and they're all, the music's going. And so music and the light shows tend to do the same thing as right before they crescendo, right before they climax, they bring things low to build back up to the next thing. It's like they turn, they turn all the light, you know, you'll be watching the lights and the driveway's going, the mailbox does something, there's a little character over here, something on the top of the chimney, and then everything goes down, and then all the lights come on. And I've noticed that God tends to work that way too. A lot of times he'll bring the lights low before he puts his glory on display. And you see it here with Abraham. Oh, I'm going to take you through a process, and all you got is a promise. Don't worry, I perform what I promise. But I'm going to let things get impossible before I put my glory on display. Not 75, not 85, not 95, when you're 100 years old. Oh, and then after you're 100 years old, and you have this child, I'm not done with you. I've got more. He tells him to sacrifice his child. And then Hebrews chapter 11, you know what Hebrews chapter 11 says when he was willing to do that? That he believed that God could raise the dead. No one had been raised from the dead yet. Why? Because of the God who brings life out of death. He had seen it in his own life. But first God brought the lights low, and then he put his glory on display. Have you ever read the book of Judges? The book of Judges is incredible, because if you read the book of Judges, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? Just do it, whatever you think. Like you, your, your own truth. Be true to yourself. Do the... And have all those catchphrases in, but I don't know what they were in Hebrew. But they were, everybody was right in their own eyes. There's a guy named Gideon in the book of uh, Judges. He's going to win a battle, and he knows it. And God says to him, the problem is you've got too many men. He had 32,000 men in his army. He was going to fight an army that had 100,000 men. <laughs> that doesn't sound like too many to me if I'm the general. And he said, here's what we're going to do. Let's tell all the guys that are scared they can go home. Ah, oh, you sure, God? 
All right, everybody who's scared, go home. 22,000 guys leave. I'm going, who are these other 10,000? They must be crazy. I don't want to lead them either. And then God says, that's too many guys. It's 10 to 1, God. Like, they have 100,000. We've got 10,000. I don't like that number. And he goes, we're going to whittle some out. And so we're going to go down the stream and we're going to see how they drink water. Um, I don't know how many of you are in the military. That's not how you find out who a good soldier is. And there's 300 guys who drink different than the rest of the guys. And he says, those are the guys. I'd have been like, get rid of those guys? No, those are the guys. The other guys are out. You've got 300. 300 against 100,000. Yeah, because you know what God was doing? He was bringing the lights down low before he put his glory on display. I want there to be no question it's me. Think about what's happening in the church right now in America. George Barna says that 30% of people that were in church pre-COVID are no longer connected to anybody of faith, not online, not in person, not in any way. I hope that God's bringing the lights down low because he's about to put his glory on display. Pray for revival. Pray that God does something only he can do. Not because of a program, not because of a preacher, not because of buildings, not because of anything, but because God shows up and does something. Be praying. Do you see this throughout the Bible, right? He tells Ezekiel the prophet, I want you to go. I'm going to transport you to a valley of dry bones. And you preach life to them. Uh, why? And he does it. And God brings life out of death. Brings the lights down low. Puts his glory on display. I already alluded to the story of Jarius. Do you know the story of Jairus? If you don't, it's one of my favorite New Testament stories. There's this dad whose daughter gets sick. And so he runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees. He's a leader in the community. He humbles himself before Jesus. And he says, will you come help my daughter? On the way, there's another woman who stopped. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Touches his robe. There's a, it seems like a distraction. He heals this woman. And then his buddies show up, Jairus' buddies, and they say, your daughter's dead. Leave the teacher alone. Like, he can help you if it's difficult, but if it's impossible, just stop. And Jesus says, Scott paraphrase, I got this. Let's go. And you know what he does? He raises that girl from the dead. Do you believe that God can still do that? Do you know what he does first, though, there? He, why didn't he just heal her while she was sick? He could have healed her from a distance. you know what he did? He let the lights get low before he put his glory on display. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Imagine you're one of the followers of Jesus, and you see him up there on the cross, and darkness covers the earth, but it's only noon, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies, the earth quakes, darkness covers the earth for three hours in the middle of the day historically, from noon to 3 p.m. Do you know what happens three days later? Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. I know today's not Easter. If you're watching online, I hope you'll type it in the comments if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ is risen indeed. The grave is empty. We've been there. I've been there with some of my friends. He's not there. Let me give you an eyewitness account. He's not there. And the women said that too when they arrived three days later. And do you know what it was like? God turned the lights down. He's about to put his glory on display. Do you believe God still does that? Shouldn't that increase your hope? I had an encounter with a friend a couple weeks ago in my office. So I was walking into my office, and I saw this guy. I hadn't seen him in about a year and a half. His name's Jeremy. Jeremy told me I could share a story. And uh, he was standing outside my door. I first met Jeremy back. We were at the movie theater as a church. He had started coming. He had come from a place called The Healing Place. I don't know if you're familiar with that here in Raleigh, but uh, if you're dealing with substance abuse and things like that, it's a great place. And he had gotten sober and decided he was going to come to church. He got connected with a family in our church and was living with them and hanging out with them and started coming and heard some sermons, made some improvements in his life, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus. And... Uh, I had seen him about a year and a half earlier. We are talking about things that were going on in his life, and then here he was. I said, Jeremy, what's going on? 
why are you here? It wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't have a meeting or anything. And uh, we sat down and said, tell me what's going on in your life. And he started telling me a story about how he started drinking again. I said, I was just a weekend, and then it turned into longer, and then I didn't want my wife to know, and so I would, after work, I would drink on my way home. And one day he was drinking on his way home from work, and he was going to go to an apartment and pick up some prescription drugs from a, a gal. When he got there, he realized she had more than just prescription drugs. He, she had some illegal drugs as well, and he hadn't done those in a long time, but he decided just a little bit, just this one time I'm going to do it. So the next thing I knew, I was waking up on the floor of this apartment, uh, paramedics were around me. There was a police officer that was speaking to me, and the police officer said, Mr. Blow, do you want to go to the police department or to the hospital? And he said, I didn't really know what was going on at that moment. I tried to sit up. I saw them bringing a stretcher in. The paramedics put their hands on my chest, put me back down on the ground, said, you're not going anywhere. And he said, I'm not going, I'm not going to either one of those. I'm, I'll be okay. He didn't even know what was happening. The police officer said, you have an opportunity, Jeremy. You can either be arrested and go downtown with me, or you can go to the hospital, and I'll follow you there. He had enough sense at that moment to say to the police officer, looks like you're following me to the hospital. Several hours later, he was talking to that police officer, and the police officer told him, I've been doing this for 13 years. I've never seen someone as far gone as you come back. And then he started to tell him, when I got into that apartment, you were laying there, no pulse, nothing. Your body was cold. I looked around the apartment. The best I can figure out is what happened is whoever sold you those drugs came out, found you, thought you were dead, so they went and they cleaned the apartment and got rid of all the paraphernalia, all the drugs. Then they left. Then when they thought it was safe, they called us. I don't know how long you were there at that point. We showed up. Your body was cold. I debated whether to even do anything, but I decided to give you some shots to try and get your heart started. I gave you six. The last packet of medicine I had was the sixth shot. As I gave you that, your heart started to beat faintly, and the AMTs came in and bagged you. You started to resuscitate at that moment, and then they lost your heart again. So they had to put the paddles on you and shocked you. That's why you have burn marks on your chest. God must have a reason for you to be here, Jeremy. And Jeremy's standing outside my office. You want to talk to him about that reason. I said, Jeremy, do you know that God brought you physically from death to life, and he wants to do the same thing to you spiritually? And we started to talk about that. He asked me some questions that made it evident that God was working in his life and had been working in his life. And he said, I, I, remember, I remember hearing you preach different sermons before, but help me out. Is Jesus God? And I said, Jeremy, if Jesus isn't God, then his death doesn't matter. Like, even if he, was more, even if he did live a sinless life and he died on the cross, that doesn't do anybody any good because he doesn't have the power to die for our sins. He's just dying. One man, maybe he could die for one other person's sins, but he can't die for our sins. Yes, he's God. He's fully God, and he's fully man. And he came and he lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for your sins. He said, I remember you telling one time in a sermon, you said this statement, it stuck out with me. He said, you said, we don't follow Christians, we follow Christ. And I said, that's true. He said, do you want to follow Christ? And because he's fully God, he said, yeah, I do. And I was there, the youth pastor was there, Danny, our youth pastor was there. And we said, why don't you pray and just cry out to him? And he cried out and he asked Jesus Christ to be a savior in that moment. Yeah, for sure. Amen. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because God still raises the dead, spiritually and physically. The God of the Bible is still God. Is that the God you believe in? If that's the God you believe in, then your hope level should increase just reflecting on that truth. Think about the truths we talked about today, that he is faithful even when life seems impossible. So no matter what happens, no matter what you see on the news, no matter what's going on in your own personal story, no matter what's going on in somebody you love's story, God is faithful. Sometimes all you have to hang on to is a promise, but he's given us promises, and he keeps his promises. And he's powerful. 
even when things seem impossible, even when Abraham's told to do something that seems contrary to who God is and God's word, he's obedient because he believes in God. And God tells us to do, sometimes he blows our beliefs away. Is that the God you believe in? If so, I hope it's increased your hope today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for being God. And God, help us to allow you to be God, to give you glory as God. When we go to give you glory, we don't hand you anything. We're not making a donation in your glory bank. We're just pointing to something that's true. And God, I pray by the way that we live our lives, by taking steps of faith, by trusting you, by hanging on to your promises, you would receive glory through our lives. We point people to you. And, and Father, I pray. I pray if there's anybody here that's like Jeremy that has yet to come to a place to follow your son Jesus Christ as their savior, that right now in this moment, whether you're watching online, whether you're sitting in person in this room where I'm standing, do you call out to him right now? Would you just acknowledge your sin to him? There's one promise you need to believe. It's in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's by faith. Will you place your faith in Jesus? Let me pray this prayer. Father, I acknowledge my sin. And I need your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive me of my sins. I ask your son, Jesus, to be my savior right now. And if you just prayed that prayer, will you just text the word Jesus to the number on your screen or the number that's in this room up on the screen? And we've got some folks that would love to follow up with you. See, with Jeremy, he's now, he's plugged into our church. He was serving on our tech team last week. He's living with a family that's in our church here. He's got support. You need people around you. And so there's next steps after trusting Jesus as well. Some of you have trusted Jesus as your savior. Maybe you've made God too small. Repent of that. Turn to him. Acknowledge that he is God. Let him be God in your life. Maybe he's calling you to take a step of faith. Take that step of faith. Maybe you need to claim a promise. And God, will you put promises on people's hearts right in this moment that they need to cling to? Maybe it's about your presence. Maybe it's about your grace. Maybe it's about your forgiveness. Maybe it's about you seeing them, hearing them. Whatever promise you want to put into their hearts. Maybe some of them are weary and they need rest from you. And I pray, God, you'd help them to turn off the news, turn off the noise, turn off all the other voices, and to spend some time with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.